the mind, by nature, is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. <laughs> it is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. If that is true, what the Buddha is saying is that all of the suffering that you have experienced today or in your life from the grossest forms of anger and fear and jealousy to the subtlest forms of irritation or ennui or whatever, from the grossest to the subtlest forms caused by some temporary force that enters the mind. This force, known as a defilement, when present in the mind, causes suffering. If that is true, we should inquire, what are these defilements? What's the danger of them? How can we work with them? And what is the benefit of understanding them? For the first 16 years of my teaching, sharing the Dharma, I didn't use the word defilement. It sounded a little too <laughs> intense or kind of un-American or something. It just, you know. But lately I've come to see that it, it really is an accurate word because these forces, when they enter the mind, they, they defile the mind, they, they obscure the mind, they, they turn the mind so that the mind doesn't see clearly anymore. So it, it, it is a proper word. It's not too harsh, especially since it causes, the Buddha says, suffering. So what are these defilements? Well, they're all forms of greed, aversion, and delusion. All forms. That means thoughts, feelings, moods, when you speak, when you act, conditioned by any form of greed, attachment, longing, or aversion, any of the many forms of aversion, or delusion, then the mind is defiled. Delusion is, you know, ignorance. It's restlessness. It's doubt. It's not knowing or knowing wrongly. Attachment is the familiar clinging, wanting, yearning, expressed or manifest as pride, wrong view, greed, etc. And aversion is the gross forms of anger and hatred, and the subtle forms of you know, irritation or impatience. What makes the defilements so difficult in our practice is because we are so habituated to them. We are so kind of familiar with them, or I should say they're so familiar with us 
that we just take them for granted as this is the way it is. This is who I am. In fact, the, the habitual defilements in our mind that we're so acceptant and tolerant of have become our personality. It's who we really think we are. You know, a moment of impatience and we can say of ourselves, I'm an impatient person. And we say that a few times and we'll believe it, that some inherent quality in my essence is impatience. A lot of the habitual defilements, or we could say the habitual defilements, have become our default setting. You may recognize your own default setting in in stressful situations. You get fearful, you get angry, you get irritated, you get impatient, you want out, you want something else. Our default setting in those situations, defilements. They are particularly insidious because they not only hinder, uh, defile the mind or obscure the mind's clear seeing, they hinder our practice. They make it impossible for us to truly find uh, peace, freedom, happiness in our life. But we should understand that these defilements are not unnatural. They, they are part of the Dharma. They are a natural occurrence. They're the nature of cause and effect. They, they come about due to certain causes. They're not accidental. They're not just a kind of mistake. They come because the conditions are there. They, they arise. If we work with the conditions, we can eliminate them. But because we're so comfortably familiar with them and take them for granted, we accept their being in the mind. We tolerate them. And this is the danger of the defilements. Because unwholesome mental states, like the defilements, when they arise, will give an unpleasant effect. That is the suffering that we experience, the effect of previous or current unwholesome states of mind. Now, it's quite a uh, it's a challenge. It's a big step in practice. It's it's a it's a forward movement in our maturity to openly and willingly begin to acknowledge the defilements in our mind. Because to avoid them, to deny them, to minimize them, to dismiss them as insignificant only strengthens them. When they're not observed, when they're not known, when they're not understood, they only grow stronger. Avoiding them feeds them. And so in one sense, we could say all of our practice is keeping an eye out for the defilements. 
how they arise, when they arise, what are the causes that give rise to them. When I say that defilements obscure the mind or they distort the mind, they obscure what the, what the mind is observing or knowing. When aversion is present in the mind, the mind sees the unpleasant aspect of that which is being observed. When desire is present in the mind, the mind sees the pleasant aspect of what is being observed. When delusion is in the mind, the mind doesn't know or it knows wrongly. We might say that there is a gradient of defilement of mind from grossest form of defiled mind to subtlest form of defiled mind or undefiled mind. And the grossest form of a defiled mind is when we're just lost in the defilement. We're angry, we don't know it, we're acting it out, and probably enjoying it. And not only anger, all of the other defilements. We're proud, we're glad we're proud, and we're acting it out, and we're enjoying it. Or we want something, we know we want something, we're glad we want something, we're pursuing it with gusto, and we don't recognize that it's a defilement. That is being lost. That is being really entangled in the defilements. With a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of understanding that there are defilements, that they might be dangerous, we can begin to recognize them. And this is an important first kind of opening in our practice is to begin to really see the defilements in the mind. And often, as some of you have already expressed today, it's overwhelming. It's just like there are sometimes so many, or they're so strong, that we feel overwhelmed. We feel just swamped by them. Well, a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of awareness kind of puts us in this untenable position of being aware of the defilements and not able to put them aside. But a lot of practice takes place right there, at that place where you see the defilements, but you're not yet free of them. And so it calls forth a tremendous amount of both endurance and patience and persistence and understanding. And for that, we need to understand the defilements. We need to understand how to work with them. There are many, many ways of working with the defilements. The Buddha just listed, well, dozens, if not more, uh, ways of working with all these states of mind, the first of which is, of course, to be mindful of them. But there are reflections that we can do to kind of keep them at bay. There are our uh, distractions, wholesome distractions, really, for keeping them at bay. But ultimately, we have to come to understand the defilements, because it is the understanding of them, the wisdom that really understands how they arise, why they arise, how, what they feel like, how they mm, jerk the mind around. It's that understanding that will free the mind from the defilements. 
not just temporarily suppress the defilements from kind of burning the mind and the body, but to really understand and uproot them from the mind. This takes wisdom. I remember when I was, um, after 10 years, I decided to go to a practice here in the States. I decided to go to Burma to put in a little more time. And I remember that at that time I was so diligent in following the instructions of staying with the breath and getting back to the breath as quick as I could whenever I found that I was off, that that kind of, well, single-pointed focus on a selected object keeps a lot of the defilements at bay. They just don't get in. If you're really diligent at staying with the breath, for example, or any other single chosen object, and you develop a tremendous momentum of staying there, it doesn't give any room for desire, aversion, pride, doubt, self-pity to get into the mind for very long. Or as soon as it does and it's recognized, we're right back to the primary object as a way of, well, avoiding the defilements. It works. You can develop a tremendous head of steam, so to speak, to cut through or to uh, bypass dealing with those defilements. But there's another way that is asked of us in insight practice, and that is to engage them. Not to be entangled in the defilement, but not to be in denial of them, avoidance of them, fear of them, but to recognize them. And for this we need some information. We need to know that these defilements are visitors to the mind, they arise due to conditions. And because they're just visitors to the mind and they arise due to conditions, we can work with them to, and work with the conditions that give rise to them, to remove them from the mind. Defilements can be not just kept out of the mind, but through understanding can be kept from arising in the mind. And for this, we need to learn how to recognize them. It is a huge step, huge step, to begin to recognize defilements in your mind. I mean, some of them are obvious. You know, you get angry, you get irritated, you get sleepy. Those are all defilements, and they're pretty, they're pretty recognizable. But more often than not, we're indulging in them, kind of aware of them, but not mindfully aware of them. We could say it's more or less aware, but it's not the mindful awareness that is going to allow this clear knowing that this is a defiled state of mind. It's more of an entangled knowing. I'm angry and I'm enjoying it. 
That's not mindful knowing. Mindful knowing has this space in the mind that knows, recognizes, this is what's happening. So recognizing is, of course, the activity of sanya or perception in the mind, the, the capacity of the mind to take note of, to recognize the distinctive quality of the states of mind. I remember when I, was, I did my first three-month retreat a while ago, and first couple of weeks went fine, and then I got into a six-week period in the middle where I was caught in sloth and torpor. Well, I didn't recognize it. You know, you're just sitting there, and you're bobbing and nodding, and you're struggling. You're trying to be with the breath without ever really naming, without ever really pulling, stepping back and recognizing this is dullness of mind, this is heaviness of mind, this is sloth, this is torpor. Experiencing it, but not able to be mindfully aware of it. It takes, I don't know just what it is, but it takes this sharp, clear recognition of what's going on before we can begin to work skillfully with the defilements. And with that first capacity or ability to recognize what's going on, well, actually, we can relax. But most of us have the tendency, when recognizing the defilements, to struggle with them, to try to get rid of them, to try to overcome them, to do everything to push them out of our experience. Actually, that's another defilement, aversion. It would be far better for us to recognize the defilement and then relax, so that we could actually open to it, feel it knowingly, and come to understand what, what is this state of mind? What is it doing to the body? What is it doing to the mind? What kind of thoughts do you have? How does it make you feel? Because it's through relaxing and opening to the state of mind, how it feels in the mind and the body, that we can begin to recognize it more quickly, not be so jerked around by it, and begin to understand it so that we're not entangled in it. Sometimes, though, we need to exercise restraint because the defilements are strong, and when recognized, often there isn't the understanding that can put them aside. And so we need to exercise some restraint knowing that it's going to um, confront our habits, if you will. Because mostly when the defilements arise in the mind, we want to just act them out. You get, you know, you get sleepy, you want to take a nap. You know, you get angry, you want to write a note to the person that's, you know, bugging you. Or you get hungry, you want to go get something to eat. We want what we want when we want it. And for the most part, that's how we live our life. You know, acting out our defilements. But here on retreat, we don't have so many opportunities, so we're encouraged to exercise some restraint. And the way we can do that is to 
well, not just, uh, what's it, what is it? It's a Nancy Reagan, Nancy Reagan practice. Just say no. <laughs> you know, well, we don't have to do that. We can actually exercise some restraint by uh, reflecting on the opposite or the antidote, if you will, to, to some of the defilements. You know, when you have a lot of anger, you can practice loving kindness. When you have a lot of doubt, you can reflect on any number of uh, topics to, to arouse some joy in the mind or some confidence in the mind. You can also just choose not to pay attention to that which gives rise to the defilements. Upon recognizing and relaxing and exercising some restraint, we need to reframe our understanding. Defilements are not the problem. They are the opportunity. They're the very ground for establishing mindful awareness and understanding. But so often in our practice, when we're dealing with or when we begin to recognize the defilements, we think, I've got to get rid of these. I've got to get rid of this sleepiness so that I can get on with practice. I've got to get rid of my impatience. I've got to get rid of my doubt so that I can really get down to practice. I've got to get rid of my aversion so that I can you know, be calmer and be more loving and be more calm and have a better practice. But that's a wrong understanding. Actually, when the defilements arise in our mind, and we're really burning with irritation or anger or fear or sleepiness, that's the very place to practice. If we understand that defilements are natural, they're part of the Dharma, they're a result of given causes, if we understand that they're deeply conditioned, we can be patient. If we understand that they're visitors to the mind, we can be persistent in evicting them putting them out. We can also arouse a wholesome intention instead of the unwholesome intention. The unwholesome intention to get rid of them only leads to more struggle. The wholesome intention to understand them may look like desire. I want to be free. I want to be free of them. I want to understand them. But actually, it's a wholesome intention in the mind to want to understand, to want to be free of the defilements, and to do what it takes to do that. This teacher that we've, we've been practicing with um, recently, the Saito Utejaniya, he says, yogis make the mistake of expecting good experience rather than trying to work with the defilements. If you come expecting good experience, hoping that you don't have any defilements, you're sure to be disappointed. Can we build that into our understanding? Can we reframe our understanding that the difficult, challenging, defiled states of mind are the very place for ripe practice? Finally, if we can recognize the defilements, exercise some restraint, relax, understand, reframe our understanding so that we know this is the place of practice, 
then we can turn our attention to being with them in a mindful way. To recognize them. To receive their uh, unique flavor, if you will. To taste them. To really feel what these defilements feel like in the mind and how they're experienced or reflected in the body. So often when we, when we feel desire, we're more entangled in the object of our desire, the person, the event, the whatever, the food, rather than the experience of desire. And when our object, or when we're entangled in the object of our desire, it always looks good. That's why we want it. But when we turn our attention to the experience of desire, we may have a very different experience. Desire may not be as pleasant as the object of our desire. So it's by turning our attention to the experience of defilement that we can begin to understand the nature of desire or the nature of fear, the nature of sleepiness. The natural, it's natural that we experience sleepiness. Everyone experiences sleepiness. It's natural that we experience fear. Everyone experiences fear. But what do they actually feel like? Do we know? All of us today probably experience some period of sleepiness or dullness in our sitting. Right? Is there anybody that didn't? Okay. Now what can you actually say about that experience of sleepiness. Can you say two coherent facts of something you observed about your experience of sleepiness? We all know what sleepiness is, kind of, but when actually asked to put it down on paper, what you know about sleepiness, it's really difficult, or any other of the defilements. Restlessness, fear, anxiety, irritation, impatience. What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in the mind? What does it do to your thoughts? How long does it last? Why does it come? How does it go? Mindful attention, paying mindful attention with these questions, not kind of kind of as the fuel of your observation, not the goal of your observation not the task of your observation, but the fuel of your observation, can help you to pay the kind of attention, the kind of continuity of attention that working with the defilements requires. We should not try to avoid the defilements. We should not try to avoid um, experiences but rather we should be careful not to get entangled in the defilement. That's our challenge. Can we recognize them when they're there? And disentangle the mind from the defilements. Finally, if we're able to sustain our attention on the defilements as they arise for as long as they're there, we can begin to really understand how they work. 
noticing all of the stuff around whatever psychophysical, emotional knot you've kind of stumbled upon. And you know, when you get kind of entangled in one of the defilements, well, they all seem to come together, really, a lot of the time. There's just a whole package of you know, thoughts and feelings and moods and memories and plans and aspirations for the future and sensations in the body. and There's just a, a mountain of experience to be discovered as we open the mind or any of the psychophysical knots in the mind. And with this, we really begin to, to see the cause and effect relationship that gives rise to these defilements. A while ago, I was having a a conversation with a friend, and he was telling me about something in his life. And I was just listening and, you know, just kind of taking it in. Later in my meditation practice, I was just sitting, minding my own business, and what he had said came into view. And perception being what it is, a natural function of the mind, I recognized that he had said this, and he had done that. Well, the mind quite naturally recognized that what he said and what he did weren't in alignment. And so the understanding that this was hypocrisy came into the mind. Now, the recognition that he'd said this and he'd done that and that it was hypocrisy is all just, in one way, it's just the natural functioning of the mind. The mind will notice things like that. That's what sanya does. It notices. Our practice isn't to somehow stop the mind from noticing or recognizing what's going on. This is a natural function of the mind. But what happened next was I got indignant and averse that he he was being hypocritical. Well, then I could see my mind start to run with, I got to tell him, I got to confront him, I got to do something about his hypocrisy. And I got so, I could see myself getting all wound up about what the mind just naturally perceived because perception will do its work. And when I saw that, I realized, I don't have to do anything about that. I don't have to do anything about his hypocrisy or, you know, confronting him with, did he say wrongly? Did he do what he said? Did he? And when I when I noticed that, I realized what a relief not to have to be that kind of person that's going to confront somebody who's a hypocrite or who's who's practicing hypocrisy, because when I was entangled in the aversion. I didn't feel good. I mean, I didn't realize it. I thought I was pretty good. But once I recognized that I was entangled in the aversion to what the mind does naturally, I didn't feel good and could let it go. It's that kind of understanding that comes, not because you figure something out, not because you think it through, not because you uh, are told it or you've read it in the book, but because you observe it. You observe, this is what the mind does. It recognizes, it recognizes, it compares, it names, it knows, it gets averse. Wait a minute. Right there. 
that's when you can recognize the arising of the defilement. It's natural, it's habitual, it's deeply conditioned, it arises due to the conditions. Something's unpleasant, gives rise to aversion. When you understand that, and you see it as it unfolds, then you can be free, you can step back, you can let go. You don't have to remain entangled in that defilement. But in order to be free of the defilement, you actually have to see it. You have to see, you have to understand how it arises. And when you pay careful attention as we are here, this is what we come to understand. How the defilements arise. How to be free of them. Through understanding them. So in our practice today, what defilements have we noticed? Well, probably all of you have, as I recently acknowledged, probably experienced some sloth and torpor. One of the famous hindrances on the first few days of a retreat. Either sloth or torpor or restlessness. Well, so sloth and torpor. What is sloth and torpor? Well, it's one of the hindrances. It's a sluggishness of mind, a laziness of mind. It's sometimes just a pure heaviness of mind that where, where the mind just doesn't want to move. It just doesn't want to do the work of paying attention. I mentioned uh, maybe here or in my group, I'm not sure, that I've been working on uh, translating a, a, a book from uh, Burmese that the Mahasi Sayadaw had written. And he gave um, the antidotes for working with sloth and torpor, and it's just a tremendous amount of reflections. Because sometimes just being lazy, being kind of casual, we need to inspire ourselves. And so he talks about reflecting on the Dharma in some way so that it brings joy to the mind. So you can reflect on, um, you know, the, the preciousness of a human birth, how rare and precious it is to be born a human. You can reflect on the, the benefits of, being, of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You can reflect on the benefits of practicing Vipassana and the goal of the spiritual life. You can reflect on uh, the stories that you've heard of other uh, either well-known or familiar friends who've practice as a way of inspiring yourself. But I was really amazed, well I was kind of amused also, that he suggested reflecting on the suffering in hell as a way of arousing spiritual joy. <laughs> now only a Burmese monk could, could think that reflecting on the sufferings of hell is going to rouse spiritual cheerfulness. Now think about it. You know what? We're not in hell. You might think you are sometimes, but we're not. If you've ever read anything about the, the, the conditions of hell, it's pretty bad. You know, in comparison, we're living in with the best of conditions. We're living at the top of the heap, if you will, of humanity. We have every opportunity. We have enough uh, health. We have enough discretionary time or income. 
we have access to teacher teachings, we have this place. There is so much to support our practice. All we have to do is remember that and, and make the effort. If we resist sleepiness when it comes, we'll struggle. Struggle is tiring. What's the, op- what's the antidote? What can we do other than that? Well, if we think that sleepiness is a problem, that's a wrong understanding. If we can adjust our understanding that sleepiness is an opportunity to be aware, to work with it, to not struggle with it, but to explore the experience of sleepiness or sluggishness or torpor, whatever, however you experience it. We don't need to want to get rid of it. We don't need to you know, think that practice is best without sleepiness. If you have that thought, recognize that's an unskillful thought. Wrong attitude, if you will. But be willing to, to accept this is the way it is right now. This is the way the mind is right now and work with that. Relax. I know when I say, if you feel sleepy, relax, you're going to think, I'm just going to fall asleep. Try it. Relax with awareness. Struggling with sleepiness is tiring. Relaxing with awareness is refreshing, even if you're watching sleepiness. And so what if you fall asleep? So what? You will learn what it's like to, to not struggle with sleepiness. If you snore too loud, someone will gently waken you. Sayadaw again says, It's perfectly natural to become sleepy when you practice. If you feel bad about sleepiness, it means you have aversion towards it and you will try to resist it. This is a wrong attitude. Simply recognize and accept, accept sleepiness. As long as you observe it with the right attitude, you're meditating. There. You have permission. Another uh, frequent visitor to the, to the mind, which is much more difficult to recognize, is doubt. Doubt, for us thinkers, is often manifest as trying to figure things out. Trying to figure out, now, what is the meaning of this? What is the right practice? What should I be doing? What did Joseph say last night? What did Ajahn so-and-so say the day before? And on the last retreat, I heard about this. And in trying to figure out what to do, when to do, how to do, why to do, we actually think we're doing something useful, but we're actually indulging in doubt. That's what makes it so difficult to see. Because doubt masquerades as kind of reflective, reasoning, logical thinking. But it's really doubt. Doubt can be recognized as a wavering in your practice. You know, being very energetic and gung-ho one minute and kind of laid back and restful the next or on a day-to-day basis. Or procrastinating, just putting off till later in the retreat, later in the day, later in the sitting, to do whatever it is that needs to be done to be present. 
there's a um, an animal on on Maui called the Jackson's chameleon. It is the personification of doubt. I don't know if you have seen a Jackson's chameleon, but they're you know they're about six or eight inches long, and they have a tail about another six inches long, and they're they're chameleons. So if they're on a, the trunk of a tree, they're kind of brown. If on the leaf of the tree, they're really bright green, and have these two little horns. They look like a, a miniature prehistoric dinosaur. And when they walk, they are doubt personified. Because before they take a step, they, they kind of practice. You know, they kind of reach, <laughs> reach, pull back, reach, pull back, reach, pull back, reach, touch. You know, that's one one leg. They got four of them. Reach, pull, reach, pull, reach, pull, reach, step. And that's how they move. Really, really hesitantly. That's doubt. When you practice like that, that's doubt. After I'd done one retreat 30-some years ago, I went on staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And one of the first, um, one of my first jobs, tasks, uh, when I was on staff was to insulate the attic of the uh, the Catskills dormitory, for those of you who've been there. So I and another staff person, Rodney Smith actually, were up in the attic insulating, and we were having, you know, a discussion on the fine points of the Dharma. <laughs> and, and I said to him, I have absolutely no doubt that in this lifetime I will realize the Dharma. Of course, I had no idea what I was saying, but I didn't let that lack of information or humility keep me from having, <laughs> having no doubt. It wasn't until 10 years later in Burma that I actually recognized doubt. 10 years. I recognized it in the form of self-pity. The commentary, I, I didn't see it for 10 years. The commentary in the mind that says, oh, poor me. I can't do this because X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. I'm too old, I started too late, you know, I'm too stupid, I haven't read enough, I don't know enough, whatever. I did too many drugs, I didn't do enough drugs. <laughs> All, whatever, any, anything, oh, poor me. As long as we believe the narrator in the mind, we're caught. We're caught. So it takes some clear seeing that narrator in the mind to recognize any of the defilements, but particularly doubt. When we're caught in doubt, we don't need to agree, we don't need to disagree. We have to see that doubt is present. Very difficult to see. Aversion, a third major manifestation of defilements in the mind. There are, again, uh, different gradients of, of aversion. Maybe the most, the grossest form is the kind that strikes out at others or at impersonal objects like getting angry or hatred or rage. This is aversion. A subtler form is internalizing aversion in the form of depression, frustration, uh, disappointment, despair. 
also a form of aversion. And then there's a, a kind of a pushing away, the fear, irritation, uh, judgment, cynicism, also all forms of aversion. But think about it. We live in a culture that you know, accepts cynicism as a way of life. Do you recognize it as a defilement? Most of us do not. We think it's perfectly normal. Or judgment, or criticism. The mind does it. It's quite natural. It happens due to certain causes. But it also is a form of suffering, or it causes suffering. So in the, in the, in the practice of awareness, or in practicing our mindfulness, it's, it's learning to recognize not only the grossest forms of the defilements, but even the subtlest forms of defilements, understanding that they do cause suffering. Years ago, when I was in the monastery in Burma, there was another Western monk uh, there who had gone sometime before I, or had arrived there some months before I had, and he'd kind of lost his initial enthusiasm, and he was just kind of hanging on, kind of hanging out and hanging on, and I was there with a lot of enthusiasm and just really fired up to practice, but he wanted to talk. And like here in the monastery, we were in noble silence, which is not strict silence, but it's pretty silent just speaking only as needed or necessary or to support practice. But he had a habit of just wanting to hang out and talk a lot. So he would come to my room and just kind of walk in and sit down and start talking about, sometimes about his practice, but sometimes just about what was going on, the content of his mind, which is not necessarily practice. And so I told him, I said, you know, I, you know I'm happy for you, or sorry for you, or whatever, but, you know, I'd like to practice, and if you could just uh, don't talk, I would be happier. <laughs> well, he was not, um, he didn't care. He still kept talking. So I, I, I told him, I reminded him that we were um, under noble silence, and that um, we shouldn't be talking. He didn't care. So I was really irritated. I was angry. I was just frustrated with this guy. So I, I said, all right, well, if you're going to talk, why don't you just come, you know, just before meal times, and we can talk for a few minutes, I'm trying to schedule him in. <laughs> he didn't care. He came when he wanted. It got to the point where I would just, I'd be sitting in my room, and I would hear his door open down the hall, and my body would go, <laughs> knowing that he was coming to talk at me. So I tried everything, avoiding, denying, scheduling, minimizing. I tried doing metta, may you be happy, talking elsewhere. <laughs> it wasn't until I actually opened up to actually acknowledge, now what, what does this feel like? You hear the door, click, <clears throat> oh, relax. Here he comes, he's at the door, Talk. I locked the door, he's talking through the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> it, it was unbearable. Well, that's just it. That's the nature of 
you know, aversion. It's unbearable. When you're actually paying attention to what it feels like to be averse, and you're not just kind of indulging in it, but you're actually paying attention to it, it's unpleasant. Really unpleasant. But I came to understand how it arose, why it arose, what I was trying to do, how I was trying to avoid it, minimize it, get rid of it. And it wasn't until I totally accepted, here he comes, here it is, here's the unpleasantness, so what? So what? You don't have to endure it. It's when we understand the defilements that we can be free of them. I couldn't change him, but I could change my mind. That's the direction of our practice here. Not to try to change the all the conditions that kind of give rise to our defilements, but to understand the arising of the defilements so that we can be free of them, disentangled from them. Another common defilement in the first few days of a retreat is restlessness. The mind is difficult to control, the Buddha said, and don't we know it. Swiftly and lightly it moves and lands wherever it pleases. It's good to tame the mind, for a well-tamed mind brings happiness. The mind is difficult to control. Is there anybody who doubts that? Swiftly and lightly it moves and lands wherever it pleases. You can't stop it. The mind will go where conditions impel it. The challenge in practice is to recognize where the mind goes so that we don't get entangled in the defilements that might arise in reaction to where the mind goes. You know that poet, I don't, I'm not sure the poet's name, but she says, you know, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood, don't go there alone. She must have been a Buddhist, or she must be a Buddhist, because the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. It goes to all kinds of places that will give rise to the defilements if we're not careful. And so we want to take our mindfulness with us when we go rummaging around in the mind. Restlessness is often, is usually manifest, or we recognize it as what we call the wandering mind. And Joseph mentioned earlier that the mind really doesn't wander anywhere. The mind always stays right here in the present moment. But when we don't recognize it, or when it's not recognized, it seems like it has wandered away. Most of us struggle with the wandering mind. It is a natural occurrence due to cause and effect. Do you struggle against hearing sounds that naturally arise at the ear door? Do you struggle with seeing sights that naturally arise at the eye door? Do you struggle with smells? Sometimes, yes, we do. With smells that naturally arise at the nose door? I mean, we, we, we tolerate, we accept. This, this, this is the way it is. I see, ears hear, nose smells, body feels, mind thinks. But somehow, thoughts are a problem. If we think thoughts are a problem, that's a problem. The mind thinks. Let's not make thoughts the problem. 
what is this wandering mind? It's, it's a train of uh, associated or dissociated thoughts that are not yet recognized. The mind goes off, leaves station, as Joseph said, wanders through the countryside and lands somewhere. Not where we chose, not where we even know. The attitude that the mind should not be wandering, that's the problem. If we recognize this is a natural occurrence in the mind, that's half the, half the battle, half the answer to the problem. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings. When we make them my thoughts and my feelings, we're sure to suffer. When we see their impersonal, causal arising, we don't need to be entangled in them. But this can only be seen by developing awareness, developing the mindfulness that we're doing. And finally, I want to mention a little bit about attachment. All the forms of longing, yearning, wanting, desiring, not only wanting things, experience, knowledge, but getting attached to our views and opinions, getting attached to a sense of self, who we think we are, who we hope we aren't. Good yogi, bad yogi. If that thought crosses your mind, that's wrong view. So, attachment, another mm, difficult to see defilement. Because so often, as I mentioned, we focus on the object of our attachment, the thing we want, the knowledge we want, the experience we want, rather than the feeling of attachment. So when we can turn our attention to recognize, first to recognize attachment, greed, longing in the mind, and feel it in here, then we can begin to understand really understand how attachment arises. What gives rise to attachment? What does it do to your thoughts? How does it feel in the body? How long does it last? When we let these questions be the fuel of our practice, the answer is in freedom. Freedom from attachment. Only when we're able to recognize, understand, and disidentify from the defilements will wisdom grow, Saido says. It is the practice of awareness. It's the practice of insight to gain this understanding. It's what we're doing here. Recognizing these visitors to the mind that cause us to suffer and gently giving them a nudge to the door understanding that they're just temporary visitors. We don't need to give them free rent. It's not you who removes the defilements. Wisdom does the job. As we understand, as we come to understand more about the defilements, we recognize them more quickly. They don't last as long. The roots are not so deep. But for this, we do need to be patient with the habits of mind and persistent in our efforts to recognize and to understand the development. So let's sit for a minute. Let the words.
quite down. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. And when your values change, your priorities change as well. And through such understanding, you'll naturally practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. This talk was given by Steve Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 22, 2007. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.